From the wilderness of Kodiak Island, Alaska, this is Murder and Mystery in the Last Frontier with your host, Robin Bearfield. In a land full of peril and vicious animals, humans are the most dangerous predators of all. As the 40-foot waves crashed down upon him and threatened to wash him and his charge, Captain Singh, off the deck of the sinking ship, Petty Officer Aaron Bean knew the helicopter would not return to rescue them for several hours. Would the freighter remain afloat? Could he survive the relentless pounding by the freezing North Pacific waves? Would Captain Singh, who wore only street clothes, survive? Bean shook off his doubts and concentrated. As long as he could, he would do his job to the best of his ability, and he would give his life, if necessary, to save Captain Singh. Welcome to Murder and Mystery in the Last Frontier. I'm your host, Robin Bearfield, and I'm broadcasting to you from the heart of of the Kodiak National Wildlife Refuge on Kodiak Island in Alaska. On November 28, 2004, the freighter Selendang IU left Seattle, Washington, bound for Shaman, China. The 738-foot freighter carried 66,400 tons of soybeans and 1,100 tons of fuel. The ship was scheduled to arrive in China on December 17th, but due to heavy winds and high seas near the Aleutian Islands, it was running at a reduced speed. After the ship sailed through Unimac Pass, the engine malfunctioned, and around noon on December 6th, one of the engineers on board mistakenly shut it down. The ship carried several engineers, but they could not restart the engine. The freighter was 170 miles northwest of Dutch Harbor when it lost power, and it was on a collision course with the rocky shores of the Aleutian Islands. The engineers determined that the cause of the engine malfunction was a cracked liner in the number three cylinder. They decided to isolate the number three cylinder and restart the engine using the remaining five cylinders. They could bypass the number three cylinder and then detour to Dutch Harbor to get the cylinder repaired. The sailors managed to isolate the cylinder, but the engine still would not start. While they worked on the engine, the wind continued to increase, and the ship drifted toward the rocky cliffs of Unalaska Island at a rate of 1.6 knots. The captain informed the U.S. Coast Guard of their situation, but he said he felt confident they would soon get the engine running and continue to Dutch Harbor. The weather was not good, and the forecast sounded horrible. Breakers as large as freight train boxcars pummeled the Selendang Ayu, and at times the ship rolled so violently that the deck was nearly vertical. These were not ideal conditions for engine work, but according to Captain Singh, he and his engineers had the situation under control. Coast Guard officials feared a disaster in the making, and they ordered the crew of an H-60 Jayhawk helicopter to go to Dutch Harbor and stand by in case they were needed to rescue the crew from the Selendang Ayu. 
Officials also ordered the Coast Guard cutter Alex Haley, captained by Commander Matt Bell, to the scene. The Alex Haley happened to be only 150 miles away, where they were monitoring commercial cod fishermen. When the Alex Haley arrived at the site of the foundering ship, Bell took in the large size of the freighter and requested the help of tugs in the area. Meanwhile, on the Selendang IU, the engineers discovered that four of the engine's other cylinders had cracked piston rings. They decided to replace the worst of these, and then they tried again to restart the engine, but had no luck. Two tugs arrived and attempted to establish a tow on the huge freighter, but their attempts failed due to foul weather and heavy sea conditions. Lieutenant David Neal and his H-60 helicopter crew sat in Dutch Harbor and waited for orders. Neal's crew included pilot Doug Watson, flight mechanic David Lickfield, and rescue swimmer Aaron Bean. The men ate dinner and went to bed. An hour later, a second H-60 with pilot Lieutenant Doug Cameron and his crew landed in Dutch Harbor. In the middle of the night, Neal got the call. The tow line had failed, and they needed to prepare their helicopter, fly to the disabled vessel, and rescue as many crewmen as possible. Including Captain Singh, there were 26 men on the Selendang Ayu. Neil estimated that each of the two helicopters could hold nine men, so they could evacuate 18 men to Dutch Harbor in the first load and then return for the remaining eight. In intense turbulence, Neil and Watson piloted their H-60 through snow squalls and fierce winds. When they reached the disabled ship, Neil shook his head. This ship is a lot closer to shore than I ever expected, he told Watson. By the time the H-60 arrived on the scene, Commander Matt Bell on the Alex Haley had decided to try to take the Selendang Ayu in tow. He steered the Alex Haley upwind of the freighter, past the Selendang IU, and then turned around and ran into the wind and seas. The gunner's mate stood on the flight deck and used a line-throwing gun to shoot a line to the freighter. At first, it looked as if their efforts were successful, but then a string of huge waves hit the ship and the tow parted. In the meantime, the second H-60 arrived on the scene and Commander Bell called Captain Singh on the radio. Singh, as well as most of his crew, was from India. He spoke in broken English, but he and Bell could communicate. Bell tried to convince the captain to begin releasing his crew so the officers and the two helicopters on site could hoist them to safety. Singh declined. He said he still believed the engineers would fix the engine and restart it. Bell could not force the captain to comply, but as the freighter drifted into shallower water, Bell suggested that the captain lower one of the Selendang IU's anchors. The captain agreed with the idea and dropped the port side anchor. The anchor caught, and the Selendang IU swung around into the wind for a while. After a short time, though, the anchor began to slip, and the ship slid closer to shore. If the freighter drifted into the surf zone, the rocky cliffs of Unalaska Island would tear it to shreds. Bell again called the captain and said, 
Now we really need to start thinking about taking some of your people off. Captain Singh seemed to agree with Bell at first, but he hesitated and made no move to release his crew. Suddenly, the port side anchor parted, and the freighter began to move toward shore with more speed. While Singh hesitated, the two H-60 helicopters circled, burning precious fuel while they waited for orders to begin hoisting the crew of the freighter. Pilots Dave Neal and Doug Watson decided to look for the best area to hoist the crew members once the captain released them. The two pilots watched huge waves break along the ship's port side. The waves leaped up the side of the freighter and exploded off the cargo holds lining the surface of the deck. The boat rocked wildly from side to side. Four giant steel cranes occupied the center of the deck, rising 60 feet above the deck's surface. The deck was awash with each violent assault from the waves. The center of the deck would never work for a hoisting spot because anyone caught in the deck wash from one of the enormous waves would go overboard. Watson and Neil finally decided the bow was the most stable area to attempt the hoist. As the clock ticked, and the Selendang Ayu slid ever closer to the shore, Commander Bell and those in the rescue helicopters fought to maintain their patience. Why was Singh waiting so long? Did he still think his engineers might be able to restart the engine? Eventually, one crewman appeared on deck, but when Neil flew the chopper into position to initiate the hoist, the man ran back inside the ship. A few minutes later, the man came out, looked at the helicopter, and went back inside. He repeated this several times over the next 15 minutes. Then another crewman exited the boat, looked at the chopper, and ran back inside the ship. Commander Bell on the Alex Haley tried to urge Captain Singh to come out on the deck and organize and prepare his crew for the hoist. Finally, a few crewmen wandered out on the deck. Each man wore a big, blocky, orange foam life preserver over slacks, a button-down shirt, and a pullover sweater. Their clothing was inappropriate for December in the Bering Sea. Brian Lickfield's job was to lower the rescue basket and then to hoist it back up into the helicopter. His job was not easy when the wind continuously blew the helicopter sideways and the ship rolled and gyrated in the storm. In a moment of relative calm, Lickfield quickly dropped the basket down to the deck of the freighter. The first crewman in line shocked Lickfield when he threw his suitcase into the basket and stepped back, waiting for his luggage to be lifted to the chopper. Lickfield lifted the bag, but he was angry. The pilots were fighting to keep the helicopter in position, and Lickfield was attempting to evacuate the Selendang IU's crew as quickly as possible. At the same time, the crewmen leisurely sent their gear up to the helicopter. Dave Neal called Captain Singh on the radio and told him they were there to lift the crew, not their luggage. No matter what they did, though, the men on the Selendang IU could not be rushed and refused to leave their luggage on the doomed ship. 
Once the crew of the first H-60 finally hoisted nine survivors, they flew them into the Alex Haley, where they miraculously delivered them one by one to the bucking deck of the cutter. Meanwhile, the crew of the second H-60 faced the same problem, with the hesitant crew members of the Selendang IU trying to put their luggage into the basket. Once they had their nine men, Captain Singh decided the second anchor he'd recently dropped was holding, and he wanted to keep the remaining seven crewmen on board to work on the engine. Both H-60 helicopters decided to head back to Dutch Harbor to refuel. The second H-60, piloted by Doug Cameron, began to experience mechanical issues on the flight back to Dutch Harbor. An engine warning light came on, noting a problem in the gearbox. The crew nervously proceeded toward Dutch Harbor with the storm tossing them back and forth. They knew they were on their own if the worst happened. The second H-60 limped safely into Dutch Harbor, but they would be grounded until mechanics could fix the problem with the gearbox. Meanwhile, Dave Neal called his home base in Kodiak to report to his superior officer. Somehow his orders got scrambled. Neal explained to the officer on duty that he and his crew were getting refueled to return to get the rest of the crew off the ship. The officer said, No, you guys are done. The ship's captain is going to keep the seven remaining crewmen on board the freighter. He told Neal they were clear to stand down for the present, but to make sure his chopper was ready to go at a moment's notice. Little did Neal and his crew know that the Selendang Ayu's anchor was dragging, and the waves had driven the boat into the surf. Let me take a short break. I am excited to announce the release of my first true crime book. The title of the book is the same as this podcast, Murder and Mystery in the Last Frontier. Was the mafia involved in the 1972 disappearance of the plane-carrying Congressman Hale Boggs and Nick Baggage? Or was it just a simple case of bad weather? Who murdered the postmistress in Ruby? How did Alaska State Troopers use cutting-edge science to find Sophie Sergey's killer? How does crime differ from one part of Alaska to another? Alaska has always had a high rate of violent crime, from the gold rush to the building of the Trans-Alaska Pipeline to the heyday of king crab fishing. The state's rich resources have attracted eager workers and criminals alike. Travel through time and space with me as I tell you about murder and mystery in Alaska from the early 1900s to the present day, and from Juneau, Kiana, Nome, Anchorage, Kodiak, and places in between. Learn about serial killers Ed Krauss, Richard Bunday, Gary Zeiger, Robert Hansen, and Israel Keys. Why did Michael Silka suddenly start killing the residents of remote Manly Hot Springs? And what reason did Lewis Hastings have for murdering his neighbors in McCarthy? Why was no one ever caught and convicted for the gruesome massacre on the fishing boat investor? Alaska is vast and beautiful, but it can also be deadly. Take a road trip and learn about Alaska's past and present through its violent crime. 
Get a glimpse of murder and mystery in The Last Frontier. The stern of the Selendang Ayu was hard aground, and the swells continued to push it farther sideways. Commander Bell again radioed Singh, and this time he told him the freighter was in grave danger of rolling over. It would soon be dark, and Bell told Singh it would be much easier to hoist his crewmen while it was still light. Singh reluctantly agreed. Unfortunately, neither H-60 was there to hoist the men, and there were no other H-60 helicopters nearby. The closest was several hours away. The Alex Haley carried an H-65 helicopter and its two pilots, Tim Eason and Rob Cornexel. Even though their H-65 was much smaller than the H-60, and they were sure to get beat up by the storm, both pilots were ready and willing to launch and take the last men off the Selendang IU. The problem, as Commander Bell was quick to point out, was that the pitch and roll limits for launching a chopper from the flight deck of a Coast Guard cutter were 5 degrees of front-to-back pitch and 7 degrees of side-to-side roll. The current conditions were way outside those limits. The flight deck captain and his crew readied the H-65 in case the captain and pilots decided to launch. Fifty to sixty knot winds buffeted the deck of the Alex Haley as the storm intensified. Meanwhile, officers on the Alex Haley repeatedly attempted to contact Neil and his crew, but they couldn't raise them. The mountains between Dutch Harbor and the shipwreck site blocked radio communication. Bell and the Alex Haley crew did not know what had happened to Neil and the others on the H-60. Finally, Commander Bell gave the go-ahead to launch the H-65. Lieutenant Neal finally received word that the Selendang IU had run aground, and he and his crew were needed back on the scene ASAP to remove the remaining men from the ship. Dave Neal, Doug Watson, Brian Lickfield, and rescue swimmer Aaron Bean prepared the helicopter and started the long, bumpy trip back to the wrecked freighter. As darkness fell, Commander Bell fought to find a smooth ride for the Alex Haley while the H-65 launched. Pilots Eason and Cornexel and flight mechanic Gibbons climbed into the helicopter and waited until Bell gave them the go-ahead. Then the pilots masterfully lifted off the deck and into the storm. Just when the H-65 lifted off the deck of the Alex Haley, the H-60 arrived back on scene. It took a few minutes for Neil to convince Eason on the H-65 to let the crew of the H-60 hoist the remaining crewmen. He reminded Eason that while the H-65 could only hold three of the stranded men, the H-60 could hold all the remaining crew members. Neil asked Eason to hover and stand watch over the H-60 while they hoisted the men. Eason had no idea how important this role would be during the terrifying events of the long night. When Doug Watson maneuvered the H-60 above the bow of the Selendang IU, he was relieved to see the remaining crew members huddled together on the deck. Lickfield lowered the rescue basket directly in front of the eight crewmen but nobody moved. No one climbed into the basket, 
Instead, they stood there and looked at it. What the hell, Lickfield said, and then, sir, they're not getting into the basket. They're not even moving towards it. Watson held the H-60's position in the raging storm while the basket sat on the deck. Meanwhile, the waves continued to grow in size, and the H-60 had to hover dangerously close to the cliffs. After several minutes, Watson told Brian Lickfield to abort the hoist. A few minutes later, they again dropped the basket. Lickfield and Aaron Bean motioned for the sailors to hurry, but no one moved. Finally, Dave Neal asked Aaron Bean to go down to the deck and encourage the men to get into the basket. Bean enthusiastically complied, happy to have something to do. Once he was on the deck of the doom freighter, Bean better understood the terror of the men huddled there. Massive waves washed over the ship, violently rolling it one way and then the other. They were afraid to walk across the windswept deck toward the rescue basket for fear of being washed overboard. When Lickfield next dropped the basket, a buildup of static electricity discharged through the cable when Bean grabbed it, giving him a powerful shock. No wonder these men refused to come anywhere near the rescue basket. Bean began stuffing the men one by one into the rescue basket, and Lickfield quickly hoisted them into the chopper. After completing several hoists, Neil noted a set of large swells rolling toward them. He warned Watson, and Watson slid sideways and waited for them to pass. Then they hoisted the fourth and fifth men from the ship. A big wave broke over the bow of the Selendang Ayu and washed Bean down the deck. Bean jumped up and ran back into position for the next hoist. A snow squall hit the chopper before they could hoist the sixth man, and they had to wait for it to subside. Then they moved back into position and made the sixth hoist. They dropped the basket again, and Aaron Bean stuffed the seventh man into it. As they began the hoist, Dave Neal told the other guys in the chopper that he saw a large wave set coming in their direction. He thought they could finish the current hoist, but then they would have to back off and wait for the enormous waves to pass. A moment later, Neil said to Watson, You're going to have to move back and left after this hoist. This is a big one. You're going to have to come back and left and up. Lickfield helped the seventh man into the helicopter, and Watson began to move left. A note of alarm entered Neil's voice. Look at the size of that wave! This is a huge wave, a huge wave. Watson stared back, left, and up. But Neil didn't feel he was moving fast enough, and he kept yelling at him, Come up! Come up! Suddenly, Neil overrode Watson and began pulling up as hard as he could on the collective, accelerating the lift of the H-60. Watson thought Neil was overreacting, but when the helicopter rose to more than 100 feet above the ocean, heavy spray from the gigantic wave slammed into it. We've got white water in the cabin, sir, Lickfield yelled. Up, up, up! The windshield of the H-60 went white. Warning signals began to blare, and red lights flashed in the cockpit, signaling that the main rotor blades were not spinning fast enough the helicopter started to shudder. The two engines shut down, and the chopper stalled in midair. The men knew they were about to get dunked in the frigid waters of the stormy North Pacific. (music) 
Neil and Watson fought to get the helicopter away from the freighter and to cushion the aircraft's fall. They suffered no severe injuries in the crash, but now they had to find their way out of the sinking chopper and managed to stay alive until someone rescued them. In the age 65, Eason and Cornexel watched the disaster occur. They estimated that the rogue wave stood 45 feet high and was moving 40 miles per hour. When the wave plowed into the freighter, it erupted into the sky, engulfing the H-60. Then the H-60 fell into the ocean. They watched the helicopter roll over and listened to the radio, hoping to hear Watson or Neil. Eason radioed the Alex Haley and reported the crash. The H-60 was upside down in the water, but the code guardsmen were well-trained for just this situation. Dave Neal was the first to emerge. He found himself between the overturned helicopter and the freighter. He fought to swim out of danger before the two vessels crushed him. In the freezing water, though, it was tough to make progress. Tim Eason in the H-65 spotted Neal. Eason hovered above him while Gibbons dropped the rescue basket. Within a matter of moments, Gibbons pulled Neal into the helicopter. Similarly, the crew of the H-65 located and rescued Lickfield and Watson. Once Neil, Lickfield, and Watson were on board and Eason could see they were not critically injured, he began looking for other survivors. Seven sailors from the Selendang IU had gone down on the chopper, and they were only wearing thin clothes. How long could they survive in the frigid water if they made it out of the helicopter? Before long, they spotted a young crewman from the freighter. He was unconscious and either dead or near death. Gibbons puzzled over how he would get the man into the basket. The H-65 did not carry a rescue swimmer, and Aaron Bean, the rescue swimmer from the H-60, was still on the Selendang IU with Captain Singh. Finally, Gibbons decided to use the basket as a ladle and scoop the man out of the sea. The turbulent 60-knot winds did not make the job easy but he somehow managed to fish the man out of the ocean and hoist him into the helicopter. As soon as Gibbons brought the man into the chopper, he told the others that he thought the sailor was dead. Eason searched for more survivors, and then the sailor took a breath. Shocked, Gibbons told the others that the man was alive but critical. Eason quickly called the Alex Haley and told Commander Bell they had a critically ill man and were heading for Dutch Harbor. On the Selendang IU, Aaron Bean watched carefully over Captain Singh. Wave after wave broke over the boat and drenched them, sending waist-deep rivers rushing past the men. They tried to find the calmest spot they could on the damaged ship, but they could not escape the onslaught of water. Bean saw the H-60 crash, and Captain Bell on the Alex Haley called him on the radio to let him know the H-65 was on its way to Dutch Harbor with the survivors from the crash. B knew he would have to do whatever it took to keep himself and Captain Singh alive until the H-65 returned. As the storm worsened, Bean and Singh fought to hold on and not get swept off the ship. Bean feared they would have to abandon ship, and he did not think they could survive such a move. They would probably get smashed against the hull of the freighter before they could swim away from it. And even if they did manage to get free of the large ship, 
they would likely get pummeled by waves when they washed into the surf zone. If they survived all those horrors, they would suffer severe hypothermia before the age 65 returned to rescue them. Aaron suddenly heard air hissing from the vent pipes on the freighter's deck. Singh looked very scared, and Bean feared water was rushing into the freighter, forcing air through the pipes. They would eventually learn that the Selandang Ayu's hull fractured while it beat against the rocks. The ship began bending itself into the shape of a bowl, and then the hull failed, and the ship broke in half. The bow floated away from the rest of the vessel, but to Bean's surprise, it did not sink. Singh explained to him in broken English that the bow must still have enough intact air compartments to provide lift. Eason and his crew arrived in Dutch Harbor and unloaded their cold, wet passengers. An ambulance met the plane and whisked the freighter's crewmen to the hospital. Then the Coast Guardsmen refueled the helicopter and headed back to the Selendang Ayu. They were shocked when they saw the freighter broken in half, but they soon located Bean and Singh on the bow section. The storm had intensified in their absence, and they knew this extraction would be challenging. It took several tries, but they managed to hold position and get the basket down to Bean. Bean helped the captain into the basket and watched Gibbons hoist him into the chopper. Next, it was Bean's turn, and after a wild ride in the basket, he climbed into the helicopter. Six men died during the daring rescue from the Selendang Ayu. The sailors were not adequately trained nor dressed for such an emergency. It was a miracle that Eason, Cornexel, and Gibbons were on the scene and in the air at the time of the crash. They were ready to swoop in and rescue the survivors. In a violent storm and in their smaller H-65 helicopter, they knew they were the only working helicopter within hours of the crash and they never hesitated to push the limits and do all they could. The Herculean actions of Aaron Bean on the Selendang Ayu amazed everyone. He was incredibly strong and determined, not only to hold on for his own life, but also to keep Captain Singh safe. The Coast Guard rescue swimmers are some of the toughest individuals you will find, and they do one of the most demanding jobs in the world. Aaron Bean proved he was at the top of his profession. The Coast Guard awarded Tim Eason, Rob Cornexel, and Greg Gibbons the Distinguished Flying Cross for their actions on a cold December night in 2004. The Distinguished Flying Cross is one of the most prestigious medals a military pilot and crew can receive. Aaron Bean received the Air Medal for saving the life of the freighter's captain. Bean shrugged off the adulation and said, it's just the type of thing a rescue swimmer does. Thank you for listening, and thank you to my patrons for your support. I recently started a group for this podcast on Facebook and would love to have you join it and chat with me and the other group members. Search Facebook groups for Murder and Mystery in the Last Frontier. You can also find a link to the group in the show notes. I'll be back soon with another edition of Murder and Mystery in the Last Frontier.